Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Carrie Kenny Silver from Reno 911. Some sort of flying mythical animal with a woman riding it. I feel like I saw nipples. Maybe I'm just imagining it. That and more. But before that, I want to give a big shout out to all of our Patreon members at patreon.com slash risk especially Candace Gaudarama this week. We always give a little shout out to people, especially who give $25 or more per month. We love, love, love our Patreon members. And we put so much incredible bonus content up there. In fact, we put up one bonus story per week. And this week, it's going to be Mara Wilson. That sounds a little bit like this. She picked up a piece of cake and she smashed it over her head and she rubbed it into her hair and cake was flying everywhere and she was crying. So that kind of pulled some focus. Um, These kind of things happen at art school. So yes, as you might have noticed, a lot of our advertising has gone away and the advertisers we still have are tightening their belts as well and we don't get to do live shows at theaters anymore we're going through a real readjustment time in terms of our finances here so all the help we can possibly get from those who love what we do we are so incredibly grateful for it there are check-ins from me there's interviews that i do with some of the storytellers and some of the staff members here there's the ad free versions of the episode that you can access over on patreon.com risk so become a member And if you are a member, consider if you might be able to up the amount that you're donating. It is hugely, hugely invaluable to us here, and we are so grateful. I think this week's episode is further proof (laughs) that you hear stories on this podcast you simply will not hear anywhere else. Risk is irreplaceable, so let's keep it running. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Okay, now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Juju Orchestra behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Radical. <laughs> there are some stories here that uh, you won't soon forget. That's how radical they are. We always say that Risk is the show where you're going to hear a level of radical honesty that you're just not going to hear elsewhere. You know, the situations you're going to hear people opening up about on risk are just, <laughs> let's put it this way, we're very, very uncensored. We have been teasing that we would be featuring our second ever cannibalism story on the podcast soon and fasten your seatbelts because soon is now this episode that story has arrived now before we jump into the stories i want to tell you guys if you have never been to one of our live stream shows before these new shows that we're doing on zoom where Four different storytellers and myself share incredibly intimate and hilarious and shocking and emotional stories. And there's hundreds of people there tuning in. And there's this real electricity to the whole experience. I mean, I walk away from these live streams feeling so inspired and jazzed and so connected. The next one is on Saturday, May 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern. We have a killer cast for this one. The legendary Charles Bush, Broadway star and playwright. Also, Gabby Conti, Charissa Johnson, and Susanna Lee. Definitely go to risk-show.com slash tour to get your tickets for Saturday, May 16th at 8 Eastern, our next live stream show. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that Peter Kim shared in Los Angeles at the Virgil before all the theaters started closing down. Oh, my gosh. Peter Kim shared one of my very favorite stories of all time. If you're new to Risk, you should definitely check out our best of episodes. Peter Kim, his first story was on the best of Risk number eight. And the, the one he shares on this episode today is also unforgettable. But before Peter, we're going to hear from Carrie Kenny Silver, <laughs> a member of The State, my old sketch comedy group from our MTV days. And since then, Reno 911, which is back on Quibi now. So it's such a thrill to have my dear friend, Carrie Kenny Silver, back on the podcast. Here's Carrie now. Now, with a story we call Driver's Ed. I used to spend my summers going to Illinois to see my family. My whole family lives there. Both sides of my family, all extended, 
cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, everybody. My parents were the only two really that left and went off to the East Coast. So I grew up on the East Coast, but I spent my summers back in Illinois with my family every year. And I waited all year to be able to do that because it was one of those idyllic, you know, you're out till dark, out till dinner, riding your bike, playing in corn cribs going on pickup truck rides, catching lightning bugs. My cousins and I used to do plays. My poor cousin Brad, I used to dress him up in fairy costumes and we would do plays. We once turned my grandmother's basement into a winter wonderland and then charged my grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles to come down to the winter wonderland in her own basement. We used her basically apocalypse supply of tinfoil to cover the entire basement floor, which I now know as an adult was probably a good thousand dollars worth of tinfoil because we wanted it to look like ice. So just really fun creative just summers running around with kids and cousins and everybody and it was heaven it was really heaven my uncle terry who was a hero of mine he was a former police officer in this small town and he just was fun always fun always coming up with pranks for us to do on other family members you know always the source of fun and the guy to go to. And one summer I was 15 years old, the summer I was going to turn 16 that next year. And my uncle Terry said, so have you learned to drive yet? And I said, well, you know, my mom and I have been doing a little bit of it, but my mom was taking me to the parking lot at the cemetery because she figured I couldn't kill anybody there. But he said, well, have you learned to drive a stick shift yet? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. And he said, well, now's the time. So we went outside and spent maybe 10 minutes getting the basics of how to drive a stick shift in his little red car. And he decided that I had a handle on it enough to move forward and drive into air quotes town, which is a small little strip of not a lot going on. But he thought it was time. I was ready. Spoiler alert, I was not. So we're driving along and I'm trying to remember, okay, clutch this, brake, go, gas, right, the stick, okay, let drive, okay. And as we're coming to a T in the road, in front of me is a custom painted van. This one had an airbrushed sort of unicorn possibly tiger, some sort of flying mythical animal with a woman riding it. I feel like I saw nipples. Maybe I'm just imagining it. Her arm was up. I think she was holding a sword, but everything happened in slow motion as I went towards the center of the side of this van and my brain started misfiring. Clutch, brake, gas, stick, cut, clutch, brakes, cut, cut. And my uncle was yelling something. I don't know what it was. I was mesmerized by the airbrush nipples coming towards my face at super speed. And I think what happened was I hit the gas. I'm not sure which one you're supposed to hit, but I'm now in hindsight, I know it's not the gas, but I did hit the gas. And I ran full speed right into the center of the airbrushed navel and Then there was silence and the van was parked right in front of a coffee shop and all of the patrons are sitting just in the window looking out 
at us. And all I remember was my uncle saying very calmly, get out of the car and go into the passenger seat. Get out of the car and get into the passenger seat. So I got out of the car. I walked around to the passenger seat and he traded places with me. Well, soon people started coming out and they said, oh my gosh. And he said, I don't know what I was, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I was distracted. I ran, we will pay for this. I am so sorry. I don't know what got into me and we will certainly take care of this. So my uncle took me back to my grandparents' house, which where I was staying. And my uncle said, you know, don't worry about it. These things happen. I take responsibility. You weren't ready. I was mortified. My uncle said, one thing is do not say anything to grandma and grandpa because we don't want to worry them. Everything's going to be fine. Nobody got hurt. We're going to take care of this. So I'm spending the evening with my grandma and grandpa pretending like nothing happened and we're playing board games and my grandmother made some kind of delicious, wonderful thing. And there's a knock on the door. It's the local sheriff's department and we need to speak with Carrie Kenny. So I'm 15 years old. I'm shaking. My grandma's like, what's happening? My grandpa, you know. So they take me in a squad car in the back. I get to the station. My have to tell my grandma and grandpa what happened. They understood. They were not mad at me. They were a little upset with my Uncle Terry. Understandably, I just felt like he was protecting me. What ended up happening was my mother had to fly in from Connecticut. I had to go to court. And believe me, that judge was so psyched to read me the riot act. And my parents had to pay a big fine, which I then had to work and pay back to them. And I was told by the judge, now in hindsight, I don't know how legal this is, but I was told by the judge that I was not allowed to drive in the state of Illinois until I was 30 years old. So I heeded that warning. I didn't drive there until I was 30. I was terrified every time I went back. I still love my uncle for that, for protecting me. And everything worked out fine. Now, I will tell you that every time I'm asked for work for a TV show or a movie, can you drive stick shift? The answer is no. I haven't driven a stick shift car since I was 15. I only drove it once and I will never drive one again. Um, okay, so let's get into it, huh? Anyone believe in God? Yeah. Not one? Oh, one. One person? Everyone got so fucking judgy. Especially this, like, artsy, cool bitch in the front. With the thing, with the Berea, she was like, God, don't you mean collective consciousness? Um, <laughs> so did I, bitch, I'm on TM. <laughs> Everyone got so judgy on God. We got one God fan right in the back, right? OG God fan, right? Like, that's like original God fans, persecuted. Like, that shit is only in LA, right? <laughs> Have, has anyone uh, heard of the Korean god of vengeance? No one. Okay, cool. So I am Korean. Any other Koreans in the crowd? One Korean. Okay, also being persecuted. <laughs> That's our thing. Two? We got two? We got one more? Korean. Oh, she's so shy. 
just give her a few drinks, she's gonna get angry. <laughs> Anger. That's how you can tell Asians apart. We're the angry ones. <laughs> I am Korean. Uh, I am uh, a kid of immigrants. And my mom is like super immigranty. You know what I mean by that, right? Super immigranty. You, you know what I'm talking about. Artsy girl in the front. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> super, which means my mom steals. And um, only from other Koreans, she has a code. She's got a code. My mom's so immigranty. Um, she, she could. When I came out of the closet, she like freaked out. You know, obviously, you know that's like a very immigranty thing to do. And <laughs> she freaked out. She freaked out so hard. I was like, should I tell her I'm a bottom and just get it over with? You know, just like, just send her to heaven to meet her God. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I should do it. Freaked out a lot. So it was fucked up. Uh, my grandfather was an elder at this church, and um, he was so uh, conservative and sex shameful, he uh, called the vagina a shame shame. Yeah. And the penis a no-no. <laughs> my grandfather has Alzheimer's now, so I, you know, like, I'm like, do I even come out to him? Because, like, what's the point? He's gonna forget. You know what I mean? Like... But, like, if I had come out of him before Alzheimer's, I think I just would have had to be like, you know, Grandpa, I don't like shame shames. I like no-nos. In my gross gross. <laughs> and watch him, like, burst into flames like Elijah. You know what I mean? Like, his favorite Old Testament character. So yeah, being evangelical was crazy. I was I was like caught in caught up in it. You know what I mean? Mostly honestly because like since I was like 5 or 6 years old, they were like playing really catchy music. Like I was singing love songs to a 33-year-old man. You know what I mean? Like I was like, "Lord, I lift your name on high." And then I would come into my own harmony, "Lord, I lift your name on high." No one else was stuck in this cult. <laughs> Literally, no one knows that song. As a child, yeah. As, as an adult, you've compartmentalized. <laughs> I hear you, sis. I also go to therapy. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I love this beautiful music. It fucking sucked me in, you know what I mean? And the food, I mean, the Korean food. Come on, like evangelical Koreans. It was amazing. The food was great, you know, charismatic men, you know, like, and I was just like all up in it. And like, I wanted to come out in high school, but my younger cousin came out right before I was about to come out. Yeah, he stole my thunder, you know? Like, he came out and I saw how the entire family and church treated him. And I was like, oh, oh my God, you're gonna go to hell. <laughs> I'm sorry. Inside, I was sorry, but I was shaming him, too, because I was such a lost fucking stupid bitch, you know what I mean? Like, we're all stupid bitches sometimes, right? Some of us shame their also gay cousin, and some of them date bass guitarists. I don't know, like, you're just... We're all stupid sometimes. So it was hard, um, and so I didn't come out for a very long time until I was 27. Saturn's return, if anyone's uh, into astrology... 
okay, this, well, does this crowd believe in anything? Besides CAA? Like, shut the fuck up. Stupid ass industry crowd. <laughs> With your unwrapped asses, shut up. <laughs> Anyway, it took me a long time, and you know, when I was 27, I was working at Yahoo as a data scientist because, I don't know, I was that bitch. And um, <laughs> I was making so much fucking money, I was like flying to Barbados to go to a friend's wedding, and I'd be like, I would put on a little headset and be like, boop, boop, Peter's on. And then I would put it on mute, and they'd be like, well, the numbers are blah, blah. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'm so high. You know, like, it was. Rihanna was like next door, you know what I mean? Like I was like living, I had like a corporate card. I abused the shit out of it, allegedly, if anyone's listening, allegedly. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, well, I gotta come out. I gotta fucking come out. So I came out when I was 27 and um, comedy truly just saved my life. Cause I came out to a, um, it was my second open mic and I was at, in San Francisco in a bar with six other people and all six people were looking at their own jokes and I got up there and I was like oh, I'm gay and then all of them like looked up and they were like okay <laughs> where's the joke and I, it, I felt free you know what I mean I was like oh I don't no one cares oh of course San Francisco so I came out and I started comedy and, and you know it really has changed my life because I could just like talk about my truth and today I'd like to share just like just a simple truth about myself that I've noticed is um, so I'm in San Francisco and I was like okay I gotta do comedy so I, I go to Chicago to do comedy right so I'm like I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it and I'm 30 and I'm still a you know gay virgin I'm not a gold star gay. Do you guys know what gold star gay means? Okay, gold star gay, you know what that means. That means like never been with a woman, you know? And then like gays are like proud of that. Like, look at me, you know? Like it's crazy, like who cares? Um, but I have been with two and a half women. Uh, <laughs> two women and then one woman I went like in and I was like, I'm so sorry, am I hurting you? And she was like, yeah, right, bitch. Uh, <laughs> So two and a half, and um, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, I had never been, you know, sexually intimate with a man before, and you know, when you come out late, you have to figure it all out, and you have no friends because all your friends are douchey, and you move to San Francisco, and you're like all alone, and and then you get on Grinder, and it's like no femmes, no fats, no Asians. I'm like, cool, all three of my amazing characteristics. <laughs> Fuck. Do you know how fat my ass is, okay? It's really fat. And I can cook. Like, I don't know, like I, I'm just offering a lot. Um, but anyway, Grindr didn't think so. But, um, so yeah, I was dealing with a lot of that. So I was rich, so I was like, okay, let me hire a sex worker. This will be great, right? A sex worker is gonna be professional. He's gonna know what to do and blah, blah, blah. So I hire a sex worker. He's great, and we're about to do it. And I'm like, oh no, I can't, no, 
stop. And it's, you know, it's all a mental thing, right? So like, and he's like, um, okay, well, I'm not gonna rape you. You know what I mean? So like, he's like, I gotta go. And I was like, no, can you just stay? And I'm crying and he's like, oh my God, are you okay? And I'm unloading on him and I'm having like a therapy session with a male prostitute. It's so cliche, you know what I mean? It's like queer as folk, 1998. It sucks, I hate it, but that was it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. And it really kicked me into like, I gotta find it organically. So I'm in Chicago and I'm uh, 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 interning for an improv theater because I'm 30, I'm fat, I'm broke, and I'm desperate. You know what I mean? Like I decided, I was like, oh, you know what? Why not go to do improv comedy and intern there? And I'm feeling like at the lowest point of my life, no offense to improvisers. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to drag long form improv. The legacy of Del Close. That's not what I'm doing, okay? Calm down. Comedy stands. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying, like, you know, it's no no one who's having a great time in their life is all of a sudden going, I should learn improv. You know what I mean? Like, there's something wrong with you. <sighs> I'm so glad I got that out. Um... Anyway, so I'm fucking trading services for improv, and this guy uh, messages me, and he's really cute, and he says, hey, um, what's going on? What are you doing? Blah, blah, And I'm like, we start talking, exchange pictures, and blah, blah, and he has a great face. You know, he looks like if Vin Diesel got fat. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... (laughs) Just like a swollen white ninja turtle. You know, like, just... If a calzone came to life. Like, I love that look. The puffy look. It's my style. So he, you know, he gets into it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to happen. He's like, do you want to come over? I was like, yeah. I'm like, okay, give me your address. And he signs off. Everybody knows what that's like, right? Like completely ghosted. So of course I'm like, there's like a void in me, you know? So I'm like, all right, there's an emotional void. I have to go fill it with my drug of choice, Taco Bell. So I go to Taco Bell. I'm like three beef gorditas, like on the plate. I know how to heal myself. And I, <laughs> I've been doing it for 30 years, you know, like I know it. And I eat the first one and then the second one and then the third one. And right when I'm about to eat it, it's like halfway down the gullet. You know what I mean? I get a bing bing on my grinder. It's like, hey, I'm so sorry. I was on the train. My battery ran out. Here's my address. Do you still want to come? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, inside, I'm like, fuck you, man. Like, you lost your chance. You know what I mean? Like, this, what the fuck? I mean, Taco Bell, these lights, you know, like. <laughs> I feel the least sexy, you know, like, what the fuck? And then he messages me a dick pic, and I'm like, be there in five. So. (laughs) So I get there. And he opens the door, and he goes, oh, hey, oh my God, you're so much cuter than your profile pic. And I was like, this never happens. (laughs) He goes, hey, what kind of Asian are you? at the door of his apartment. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like it was like a bridge troll. I was like, answer it correctly. (laughs) 
You try to get that dick, you better answer this riddle. <laughs> so I do what I do. My brand is to like sidestep, you know, be coy. So I was like, <laughs> the kind that swallows. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> no, really. What kind? And I was like, Korean. And he goes, oh my God, that's my favorite. I'm such a big rice queen. <laughs> I know. That, I am told, was a red flag. <laughs> so I go in and... <laughs> And the place is fucking immaculate. You know what I mean? Like, just like architectural digest meets Dexter. <laughs> you know, like too clean. And um, we may start making out, and I'm like, okay, this is, you know, I'm feeling a little, you know, you know, you have that like sense of like sixth sense, but of course, I'm a virgin anally. <laughs> In case, ma'am, you weren't paying attention. <laughs> So I'm like, get it done, you know? So like we go into, one of those like truly rom-com, like, oh, I'm spinning you around. Oh, knocking off bookcases. And he's like picking it back up, you know? And then we get into the thing and his room is completely white. White. Lily white. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck? He's gonna kill me. Which I am told is another red flag. <laughs> so we start fucking, and it's, it was good. It was really good, it was fun. I felt taken care of, and I felt safe-ish, but I felt more like, you know what I mean? Safe-ish is a thing coming this fall to freeform. You know what I mean? Like, So I was like, oh, okay, I'm having fun, I'm having fun, you know, and then, oh, I'm having fun, and I ripped the bed sheets off, and he goes, stop ripping the bed sheets off. And I go, what? And he gets off of me, walks around the bed, fixes the bed sheet. Me, the whole time, I'm sitting there like this, like, Just like following with my eyes, like a like a painting in a haunted house, you know, like. <laughs> and he like just kind of marches back up, and then he's like trying to fuck me again, and I'm like, "What are you? No, what? Explain what? What is going on?" And he's like, "Come on, come on, come on, call me daddy, call me daddy," and I was like, "Wait, what? No, I have, I have a weird relationship with my father, you know, like I'm not." He's like, call me daddy, call me daddy. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. And he's like, call me daddy, you fucking chink. And my mind goes to like, okay, I told you I was Korean. I think you mean gook. But the outside is fucking raging. So I'm like, no, fuck you. And I push him out of me. And all of a sudden... I beef gordita all 
over his lily white sheets. <laughs> and I had never experienced that type of like instant karma before. <laughs> Until today. So this literally happened this afternoon at 1 p.m. <laughs> I was driving down Cosmo Street. You guys know this street in Hollywood? It's like very shady, seedy, and I don't know. There's like, I don't, I'm a bad driver. Uh, honestly, the stereotype is sometimes true, okay? Like, I'm a bad driver. So I was just like this, and I was like, oh, is this 1519? Or, you know one of these things where like you like kind of swerve and you go, oh, that's not 19, you know, and then you like swerve back. And this guy behind me starts honking the horn. Bah, 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 bah. And he's like, hey! And he drives right up next to me. He's in a black CLK, beautiful car. His wife is like, oh my God, I hate him. <laughs> and he's like, hey, hey, aren't Chinese people supposed to be good drivers? Like in a, like, sarcastic way like he was like trying to be sarcastic but he called it ironic you know what I mean like he's like an idiot yeah and, and then I was like what and I just looked at him and I looked at his wife and I was like oh this poor lady has to live with this guy so I just look at him and calmly go fuck you man and he goes fuck you and drives off to the stop sign right then a Honda Fit drives right up to him as the uh, Benz is making a left and this guy has a rock in his hand throws the rock at the Benz and cracks his rear shield and then makes a right and disappears <laughs> talk about instant karma which made me think like okay so every time some fucked up white guy makes some kind of racist remark at me, he fucking gets it. And I was like, is this a superpower? <laughs> this is my superpower. So I'm walking around all day like, come for me right now. I wanna watch you coronavirus your family out of existence. No, it's not a superpower. I'm just a man. Okay, I am just a man who might be lucky. Not some, I don't know, mythical, vengeful Korean god. Good night. In the first few months of the sixth grade, Shit got real. In history class, we saw documentaries about the Holocaust and Hiroshima. I mean, those were dark days. That was a room full of 11-year-olds with their jaws just hanging open. Outside of class time, I was reading The Exorcist, partly because my mom had told me, Kevin, if there's one book you should never read... It's The Exorcist. And on the playground, where kids used to be, you know, competitive or idiotic, 
now they were getting mean. Junior high mean. Now, one of my best friends then was this sunny, blonde-haired kid named Donnie. Some of my classmates thought Donnie was a quote-unquote nerd, which was one of the worst things you could be called in 1981. It was partly because he wore horned-rimmed glasses like Buddy Holly, which are cool again, but not then. And I guess kids thought he was too nice? You know, like in a in a like a Ned Flandersy kind of way. Anyway, I had a huge secret at that time. I had a crush on Donnie. When he would see me, he would say, "Hey, Kev." He was the first friend I had who called me Kev rather than Kevin which I took to mean, like, I don't know, maybe he liked me too, you know, because, I mean, that's some pretty hardcore intimacy right there. <laughs> but another thing was, I absolutely loved looking at Donnie's butt. I had a hard time not looking at Donnie's butt. You know, sometimes I'd say to him, Hey, Donnie, wouldn't it be hilarious if you mooned me? Which, of course, is not hilarious to me. It is, in fact, the way to my heart. But Donnie thought it was hilarious, and he would do it. And then i just make sure my hands were blocking his view of the crotch area of my jeans, and I'd laugh and laugh. Now, my other best friend around about that time was this fella named Dave, and he was pretty much the polar opposite. He was the lovable grouch. He had this intense stare and a great gift for sarcasm. I remember him pointing to the nuns as they were ordering us to line up in a single file line, and the line was getting all confused on the playground, and he said, look at this, Kevin. It's the blind leading the blind. Everyone knew that Dave had this dark side to him. I mean, he was the guy who lent me his copy of The Exorcist. But because Donnie was so sunny and Dave was so dark, the two were like oil and water. You know, it was hard to be friends with both. Well... One day on the playground, I noticed a bunch of kids kind of clustered in a huddle. And I walked right up and I said, what's going on? Well, someone had a trapper keeper notebook, you know, and people were passing it around to add their names to a sheet of loose leaf. And Beverly Winarski said to me, you want to add your name to the list, Kevin? It's the I Hate Don Club. Well, sure enough, they hand this to me, and I can see that at the top of this list of over 30 names in huge capital letters were the words, the I Hate Don Club. And I knew that handwriting right away. It was Dave's. Well, I couldn't concentrate in math class that day. I mean, I couldn't concentrate in math class any day, but that day... I was shaking in my seat. How could Dave be so cruel? I mean, he'd clearly created this 
club. So Don would find out that the whole school was hating on him. And for what? Being a little nerdy? Having rockabilly eyewear? I was hurting for my friend. And that's when I got the idea to do something that was, and still is, completely unlike me. I decided to challenge Dave to a fist fight. Now, I didn't know anything about fighting. I had no reason to think I'd win. But into great crisis steps a great man. So, right there at my desk, I folded up a note and motioned for the three kids in front of me to pass it on to Dave. It said, you're being a real jerk about Donnie. Meet me behind the quick shop after school. We'll settle this with our fists. I'd heard that line on the Incredible Hulk. Well, Dave never even turned around. He just passed a note right back to me saying, you're on. But then I had two more classes to sit through and think about what I'd done. There were two things I was most afraid of. One, getting punched by Dave, and two, punching Dave. I punched my little sister once and her tooth turned black. I never felt more awful. In fact, she's a therapist now and she still asks if I've processed how awful that was of me to do. Anyway, sitting there in those classes, I kept thinking, God, how might this go? But all the scenarios seemed like worst case scenarios. Then I thought, Look, I really want to back out of this fight, but you know who else might want to back out of this fight? Dave. Neither of us was the fighting kind. We were the kind of kids who spent our spare time reading The Exorcist. So, in social studies, I came up with a new plan. You see, the quick shop was the little grocery mart across the street from our school, and kids sometimes snuck to the parking lot behind it to smoke cigarettes or do experiments with Coca-Cola and Pop Rocks. But I lived up on a hill a little over one block away, and from my attic window back at home, I could spy on kids goofing off in the lot behind the quick shop. So, what if I didn't show up for the fight, but did reconnaissance spying on the war zone from my attic to see if Dave did show up? Then if he did, that's when I could decide whether I wanted to run there and make up some excuse for being late, or not. It was a confident plan for waffling. So after school, I ran, ran, ran like the wind to get home and up to the attic window. I grabbed my dad's opera glasses, which he could never find when he went to the opera because his kids were always pulling crap like this. And there in the lot behind the quick shop was nothing. No one. For 10 minutes, 15, 20, a whole half hour. Dave never showed up. He chickened out. Of course, I did too, but he didn't know that. So I could say I won. The next morning in homeroom, I walked right up to Dave and said, 
You never showed up. He said, What? <laughs> no, you never showed up. I said, Um, no, you never showed up. But it quickly became apparent that neither of us could think how to actually prove what we were claiming. And so, by the end of the day, we seemed to have silently arrived at the same plan of action, which was pretending it had never happened. Fortunately, the I Hate Dawn Club was soon forgotten as well. And in the years that followed, even Donnie and Dave started getting along. Although Donnie did become a lot more interested in the opposite gender and a lot less interested in mooning me. Well, a couple of years ago, I had drinks with my old friend Dave. I said, do you remember in the sixth grade, I challenged you to a fist fight? What the hell happened there? He said, oh man, do I remember. You know, I did not want to show up for that fight. But then I remember in social studies class, I got an idea. I thought, wait a minute. Right next door to Kevin Allison's house is my friend James Silver's house. And I knew that his family had an attic. And from that window was a perfect view down the hill to the lot behind the quick shop. So after school, James and I ran back there and were looking through his dad's binoculars to see if you showed up. And then if you did, that's when I could decide if I really wanted to show up too. Turns out, both of us were sheltering in place within a stone's throw of each other, up in attic windows, maybe 80 feet apart, looking through binoculars at an empty parking lot about a block away. And for both of us, that was our first and only fist fight. is risk this is parquet courts behind me now and we just heard from me 
little story from my childhood there. And before that, we heard a fantastic story from Peter Kim, who you can find on Twitter at PeterKZ. Now, from Peter's story, you probably heard how electric, how alive a Risk Live show can be. But you know what we've discovered in the past couple months? So are our Risk live streams. The one we've got coming up on Saturday, May 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern is not to be missed. Go to risk-show.com tour to get your tickets and check out our live stream. It's a full Risk show, four stories, including the legendary Charles Bush, plus a little something from me, and the super fun Q&A hangout we do afterward. So that's Saturday, May 16th, 8 p.m. Eastern, tickets at risk-show.com slash tour folks if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues june's journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iphone or your android you are uncovering the mystery of june's sister's murder this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, uh, I haven't heard any cannibalism in this episode yet. Well, my grandpa Allison used to say to me, Kev, if there's one thing you shouldn't rush... It's cannibalism. And the crazy thing about that is Grandpa Allison died a few years before I was born, so WTF? But seriously, in a little bit, we are going to hear an unforgettable story that was recorded the last time that Risk was live in Austin, Texas last year by a fella named Shiny. But before that, we're going to hear a story from one of our all-time favorite storytellers. We love every appearance she's made on the show. Some real classics. It's Christine Gentry, who you can find at christinegentry.net. Here she is now with a story we call Let Em Look. So my dad is only a few inches taller than I am, but one of the most intimidating men on the planet. 
He's an ex-Air Force Vietnam vet who never talks about what it was like in the shit and rarely talks about what it was like anywhere else. You could say he's allergic to feelings. When I was growing up, my dad was a mechanic and my mom was a housewife, and so we were super poor. And we lived on the outskirts of a large suburb of Dallas, and because we were poor, most of the meat that we ate came from animals my dad had killed. And so it was totally normal for my dad to bring a deer home and string it up in our chinaberry tree in the front yard and uh, gut it and butcher it in front of the entire neighborhood. And uh, let's say my mom would say, hey, go get dad for dinner. And I'd find him in the backyard running a deer head through a table saw because he wants to keep the antlers for the living room wall. Also totally normal. And uh, if a mother was walking down the sidewalk with her small child and would try to shield the child's eyes from this carnage, he'd be like, ah, you ought to let him look. (laughs) One time, uh, when I was about eight years old, my mom asked me to go get some ice cream out of the freezer out back. We used to buy those big buckets of ice cream, you know, the cheap ones from Sam's Club, and we would keep it in the freezer uh, in the shed out back. And I went back out there, pulled myself over the edge of the freezer, and I screamed because inside of the freezer was a bobcat. <laughs> and it, it was hugging the ice cream, and it was looking up at me with a bullet hole right in the middle of its forehead. And I ran back inside and I said, where's dad? And my mom was like, he's at work. You know, he'll be back. And I sat on the couch and I waited for him. And when he got home, I stood up and my arms were crossed. And I said, daddy, why is there a bobcat in the freezer? And he said, well, because it was there. And I wanted to show my friends. And I said, daddy. I stomped my little eight-year-old foot. You will not kill anything that ain't bothering you and that you ain't going to eat. And he looked at his little eight-year-old daughter, thought about it for a second, and said, all right. And he shook on it. (laughs) And to this day, that man has not killed anything that ain't bothering him and that he ain't going to eat. Shit, there's a lot of you people out there. All right, all right. Nine months out of a 13-year toxic relationship, I'm riding my motorcycle through the mountains. If you've never been on a motorcycle, it's fantastic. You can't think of anything else but what you're doing right there. So to ease your mind to, to ride was my favorite thing. So Memorial Day weekend, I'm cruising through the mountains, enjoying my singlehood, trying to get my life back on track. And I see up ahead of me a truck and another car, and coming up ahead, there's a car that stops, and there's a fishing area off to the side. And as I'm coming up to it, this car stops, and other cars start stopping behind it, and it lets the trucks go by, and as I get closer to it, it still stopped. And I say, okay, to myself, it stopped. 
I'm safe. I start going, and right as I get up to it, he hits the gas and hits the back of my motorcycle. It's very vague at that point because all I remember is the motion of it and flipping through the trees. And so I immediately sit up, and I take off my helmet, and I'm looking around going, holy shit. And there's this intense burning. I look down, and I'm seeing too much of myself because there's bones sticking out. And my foot still has a shoe on, but it's kind of hanging down below there like that. And in my mind, I'm just going, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then I just start screaming, fuck, fuck, fuck. Okay, somebody get down here and help me. Holy shit, what the fuck is going on? The kid who hit me. I say kid. He was very young. He's out there with his girlfriend, as I found out. Never met him. But I understand. You don't want to go down there and see that, the product. And it's a scary thing. But some people came down to help me out. There was a family going through the mountains, and a young woman who had just taken a safety course comes down and puts a tourniquet on my leg. And a woman, because up in the mountains, she's a hippie, and so she's coming out, and she's putting essential oils on my face. <laughs> and I'm getting all shocky, and this shit's getting on my face, and she's like, this will help. And I'm like, please, get the fuck off me. <laughs> this time spread was very short in how it actually went, but it seemed like a much longer time to me. About a half an hour to getting to the ambulance, and a half hour in the ambulance, getting to the helicopter, and them saying, okay, here's what's going on, yada, 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 and do you want some morphine? I'm like, fuck yes, give me morphine. But then it doesn't really help, and I'm just nauseous. I'm like, no more morphine, please. And they get me to the helicopter, and they say, do you want some ketamine? I'm like, fuck, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> I've always wanted to be on a helicopter. It seems so damn cool. I remember none of it. All I remember is colors and emotions and shapes and the sound of the thump, 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 thump. And it was only a half hour ride, but fucking hell, I transcended time and space. <laughs> and during that time, because I'm fucking scared, all I could think is, I don't want to die. Back there in the woods, I gave my phone numbers away to you know, people I wanted to, uh, them to call. Just tell them that I love them, because I have no idea what's going on. All I know is I'm seeing meat and bone, there's pieces missing, and I'm scared out of my mind. And so while I'm tripping balls on this helicopter, all I can think is, what the fuck have I done with my life? My whole growing up, I've never really been happy. And I don't mean that as like, you know, I've been depressed. It's just been a whole lot of meh. I've never really had joys. My upbringing, my parents were very dry bread. I can't remember them saying to each other that they love each other. And that's just kind of how everything was. So my emotions were, to say the least, stunted through most of my life. In relationships and work and kind of all of my life. So when I say I was in a toxic relationship for 13 years, well, I played a part in that. It wasn't the entire part, but I own it. I'm trying to figure out when I'm, you know, 35 years of age, how to put everything back together. And all I'm saying to myself is, if I survive this, I'm going to try to do better. I wake up in the hospital, and I, I jump to that because I don't remember shit. 
but my mom's there, and my dad's there, and two of my best friends are there. My mom, she's a school teacher forever and has all the hair that breast cancer left her, which is not much, but from her empathy and her compassion, she's, all, that's all she's got left in her life is the kindness. And I see the worry on her face. I see my dad, who never seemed scared, because that's who he is, the stoic man, who has had the same mustache from the 70s. It's like the little handlebar that goes down. Never changed. He shaved it off once, and it scared everybody shitless. <laughs> I see my best friend, who has always looked young for his age. Like, very young for his age. But he's, like, one of the strongest people I've ever met in my life. And his wife, who looks old for her age, and she's generally older than him, about 10 years older. And so they make an odd pair, but they're such a fucking great couple. They stay with me that night. A couple days later, one of my other good friends, uh, a friend who I met in college, and I'll talk about more her here in a minute, she calls the Amputee Coalition because the doctors keep saying to me, you're going to have to take this foot off. They put it back together. It's kind of foot-shaped, but they have it under a a rotisserie, sort of heat lamp kind of going on. And I'm like, that could be a foot, man. You can't tell me it's not. But they start bringing in CAT scans and things, and they're all like, you see all those sharp pieces? That's not supposed to be like that. So my friend, she calls the Amputee Coalition. This man, Thomas, comes in, And he walks in. He strolls right in. Not a problem in the world. He's got shorts on. Because that's what you do when you go in to meet somebody in the hospital who's had a traumatic injury. And he sits down and tells me a story. He tells me. All right. I was in the military. And I had a severe accident. As much like yours. My foot was kind of pulverized. Over five years, I had about 35 surgeries. And during that whole time, I was living with my parents, and I'm living out of a wheelchair, and I was fucking miserable. I was addicted to drugs, because all I'm doing is taking pain medication, because it hurts all the time. And all I wanted was to have my life back. And then I met a guy who just said, just chop it off. What are you doing? And so he did. And six months later, he's up and walking, and he has his life back. And he's getting things back and going. That's why he joins this coalition to come out and talk to people. That's when I kind of get the idea. I'm an active person. I can't sit still. I hate sitting down. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is where we're going to go. So in the hospital, they kept my room very hot because I want to encourage vascular flow. Because they've said, well, if you're going to try to keep it, we should try to make it as good as possible. So it's hot as hell in there. It's probably about... 93, 95 degrees in my room at any time. And so me not liking heat, I'm not wearing any clothes. I just have the sheets, and I have just people visiting. Going back to saying where, like, I never was really super happy and not an emotional person, that extended to all my friends as well. All my friends at that time, I kind of treated as drinking buddies. We go, we hang out, we shoot the shit, terrible, terrible jokes. But... I never felt connected to them. I never felt like I had best friends. I was always feeling alone. And I start seeing these people show up. They're telling me how scared they were and how much they're happy that I'm still around and how much they would miss me. And I'm starting to get the idea that 
I had these friends, it was a deficit on my part that this love that I was craving from people and that I wanted in my life but was afraid to like reach out and ask for had been there. I just, I was blind to see it. So the leg comes off. And during that night, one of my best friends, I met her in college. After our freshman year, we're like, let's get an apartment together. And our parents are all like, you're a boy and a girl. This is a stupid idea. What if you get together? I'm like, well, then we'll get a one-bedroom apartment. It's fine. <laughs> but it was always a very platonic relationship. We're always just very good friends. And many years later, this accident happens to me. She lives probably five miles away, doesn't have a car, but every day rides the bus to come over and see me every single day. And the night my leg came off, she was there with me. And it's a weird sensation because you kind of wake up and you look down, it's like, all right, it's not there anymore. But you can still feel it. The nerves, they have a memory and it's the eeriest thing to see that your leg's not there, but I can wiggle my toes and I can feel it and I can feel it itching. And as the night progresses on, that itching becomes a burning. And then that burning is just an untamable fire and it's pain and it's aching with every pulse and it's just killing me. The nurses are coming in and they're giving me more drugs and they're trying to figure everything out and it's just nothing's helping at all. And through it all, she's sitting there, she's holding my hand. And she tells me, don't worry, I'm here with you. Whatever you're going through, I'm right here with you. And I'm not going to leave your side. I'd never been so grateful for somebody to just hold my hand and to be next to me. Because that shit was scary. It was intense. And it was painful. Then, you know, they put the stent in and they give me some more drugs. And I finally get over it. And over a couple days, things kind of get better. Then I go home. My best friend, the young guy, he's, we both have a very dark sense of humor. And we always would like telling horrible, terrible jokes to each other. Oftentimes because, you know, we worked in an animal shelter and that's kind of what you do to relieve the stress on yourself. During that time, he's like, well, if it comes off, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, well, you know, I want it back. He's like, well, what are you going to do with it? And keep in mind, I don't remember a lot of this time because of all the drugs. So I had to clear things up with him. I called him up a couple weeks ago when we were trying to figure this whole story out. And I said, fill me back in on this, how this all came about. And he said, as he recalled, in the moment, it seemed like eating it was important to you. as a way of totally getting it back, like you weren't really losing it that way. And so because of that, it became important to me too. This tells you the kind of friends I have. That's a true friend. When you're high on drugs in the hospital and you say, I want to get my leg back, it's mine, fuck it, they're not throwing it away, and I'm gonna fucking eat it. And they're all like, yeah, bro, let's do it. All right. (laughs) So I broached this with the doctors. And keep in mind, I just said, I want it. It's mine. (laughs) 
I want to have it back. And the doctor, I only see him about five minutes a day, and he stops, turns around, and just kind of looks at me. He's like, what do you want it back for? And I said, well, it's mine. I, I, want, like, I want a door stop. I want a taxidermy. I want to have my leg just sitting right there. Your taxidermy to freeze dried so I can shove it in the corner. Because, you know, how cool would that be? And people would ask me, like, why don't you put it in a jar? And because I'm going to drop it. I only have one damn leg. It's going to be a mess. Thank you. This is making it much easier. Thank you all. So the doctor said he'd never been asked about that before. And he told me, well, let me see what I can do. That's never come up before, but I'm going to talk with the people higher up in the hospital. Let's see what we can do. And he comes back a couple days later, and he says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sign these forms. Go and go through the pathology department. And after a time, they're going to test it, make sure it's okay, and then we'll give it back to you. So, cool. So I had to broach this with other friends. I remember one friend, Lacey. We go over to her house, you know, have a group of friends for game nights. I kind of said, like, so I'm pitching this idea around. I want you guys to like, not freak out. But, hey, would you all be interested in coming over and let's just, like, eat a little bit of human flesh, particularly mine? <laughs> and, again, these circles of friends that I go into, she was all like, oh, yeah, let's do that. And she's like, well, let me call my boyfriend, Bob. He's a professional chef. He should cook this shit. <laughs> so she calls him right there on the phone. I had briefly met him once. Very nice guy. But he's all like, babe, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and so like, no, no, we're getting it back. It's going to be totally cool. So then the party, the game, became a night of, okay, one, is this safe? And two, is this legal? So this becomes a whole thing of like ethical cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm giving of this freely. There's no like stabbing or anything. There's no murder or anybody's like, yeah, I'm gonna eat you, become part of me, or any shit like that. It's just, hey, let's have a good time. Eat some people meat. <laughs> So we kind of get this planned out. They call me up and say, okay, we're ready to live, give your foot back to you. I go to the hospital and I bring a backpack and I have a, like a little cooler and stuff because I have no idea how this is coming to me. I figure they freeze it or something. And they just, they hand me this red plastic bag and there's just a foot in it. And they're all like, sign this. And they give me a foot. I put that shit in my backpack. Uh, walk out. <laughs> and I go home and I stick it in the freezer because the idea was at that point I still wanted a doorstop and so I was going to cast it. I was going to like put some plaster and shit and make a mold of it because we called like 13 taxidermists and they wouldn't talk to us anymore. <laughs> and we uh, called up a couple freeze drying places and that's crazy expensive. It's like $1,200 to freeze dry a foot. I didn't have that money. So I'm all like, okay, we're going to 
you know, cast this thing and have some friends over early in the morning. And we take it out of the bag, and it's bizarre. And I'm holding my foot, and I'm cleaning it off because there's looks blood and iodine left on it. And, like, there's this bone sticking out of the top, this meat. And I could see, like, the flesh where I had the accident, and they kind of put it back together. I have no ownership over this thing. It's like a movie prop. It's bizarre. Okay, well, here's a foot. It wasn't even gross. The eeriest thing about it was the absence of the emotions that I should be having over it. It was blank. And so while they're getting up and mixing all the stuff together to get the plaster ready, I take a little knife and cut it on the skin and kind of peel it back down along the shin, take it down the bone and slice it off a little bit and I come down and the bottom of it and cut back a little bit I come away with about three ounces of meat and my friends they're watching me do this and they're all like hey you okay (laughs) because there's a look on my face as I'm sitting here doing this and I, I say to them no man this is fucking weird this is no I'm holding my foot and cutting it up so we can eat it. No, I'm not okay. And I stick it in the freezer in like a little sandwich bag behind the Girl Scout cookies so no one else sees it. They happen in there. I don't want to have to explain that shit. So we have the brunch. And it's fucking lovely. My friend Lacey, she has this big country house from her family her boyfriend's over there, and he has marinated this thing overnight. I walk in there, well, I crutch in there, and it's like flowers set up, and there's an outdoor table under the pergola. There's wine glasses for mimosas, and there's all kinds of pastries, and like, it's fucking beautiful. All my friends are there. Bob's sitting there chopping up like onions and little peppers and shit. And he takes out the meat, he chops it up, and he's sautéing it. He's got some little fucking sauce he's put on that. And it smells really good. (laughs) And when he does, like online I always call it foot tacos, but it's not really true. It's more like foot tostada tapas. Like little tostadas with a little bit of meat and shit on them and chopped into like quarters. So there's about 12 pieces there. It wasn't a lot of meat. There's like 10 people. Everybody has to get a taste. So we down a shit ton of mimosas and we sit down around this table and we're making terrible, terrible jokes to kill the creep vibe that is just hanging heavy in the air. Because you're told all your life, like, only psychopaths go out and eat people. (laughs) You know, here we are. And so there's the inevitable, I have to stand up in front of them and say, take this, this is my body. (laughs) I have a friend who says, this is the first time you've been in 10 people at once. <laughs> and we all take our little chunks and our little 
chimichurri sauce and take a bite. And I got to tell you, it was tasty, but chewy. Tasty and chewy and beefy. Like, like bison beefy. This isn't like the other white meat pork bullshit. This is like super beefy, stringy, fucking chewy. And we're gnawing at this for a little bit. A little more mimosa, trying to wash it down. My best friend's wife goes, I'm so fucking sorry. I got to spit you out. Puts it in a little napkin and puts it over to the side. Buddy Spike, on the other hand, he's all like, there's one piece left. Can I have that shit? We kind of sit there and enjoy ourselves and make terrible jokes. And that was kind of the end of that chapter in my life. And it was fitting. It was a fitting end to it. Because it was kind of like a fuck it, let's go sort of moment. About three months after that, I quit my job. It just didn't suit me anymore. I wasn't happy with it for a while, but I was just doing it because it's my fucking job. What else am I going to do? But no, I quit it. And I moved down here to Austin. I got an opportunity to try out construction. Well, sure, why not? I hear there's money in that. Well, fuck yeah, there is. And I'm making it. And yeah. I come down here and I start dating. I meet this fantastic woman. First date. She has all these first date questions. She's a professional dater. She's good at this shit. <laughs> On the first date, she asked me, what's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? <laughs> I'm like, I just met you. I'm not going to tell you. But the second weirdest thing was I ate some pig ears, uh, a Jean Bao place in San Francisco. And she's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. You got to tell me. And so I did. That date was about six hours long. <laughs> She's the fucking coolest person. Uh, we got married back in May. And we're going on our honeymoon in two weeks, so fuck yeah. Life has just gotten rich and beautiful and vibrant. And all these people that I talk to now, it's open. And these grisly, deep, emotional conversations to get to know one another and be honest with each other. And it's beautiful. It's everything I wanted. It's a weird thing to like be thankful to be hit by a car and have your foot come off. To have all this shit in your life. But that's where I am. And then I'm up here talking to you lovely people. So how nice is that? Thank you all very much.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. Uh, this is Yancey and the little praise party behind me now. And we just heard from Shiny. That story was recorded when Risk was last visiting Austin, Texas. You can find Shiny on Reddit at u slash incredibly shiny shart. And I'll tell you, you know, what I think is so amazing about that story is it's yet another example of a story that made headlines. You know, I think it was Vice wrote an article about it that went viral. But when we, when the folks here at risk sit down with a storyteller or meet with them over Zoom or whatever it is and coach a storyteller through unpacking things, adding context to things, looking at the emotional trajectory they were going through, it becomes a whole other thing than what you were ever going to find in a little, you know, splashy headline in a newspaper. So that is why we are always calling on you, the risk listeners, to be alerting us if you see stories like this out there in the news or you come into them in your own community or you see uh, an amazing Twitter thread or someone reporting something that's happened to themselves on Facebook or whatnot, to contact us. Contact me at kevin at risk-show.com and I can reach out to that person and see if they might want to work with us on workshopping their story and bringing it to life in a whole new three-dimensional way. You, the listeners, can be our story scouts, and you might have people in your own lives, or even you might want to pitch us a story if you go to risk-show.com slash submissions. And if you want to see what a Risk Live show is like, and maybe you weren't able to be there in Austin the night that Shiny told that story, well, you're in luck because now we have these live streams the next one is Saturday, May 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just go to risk-show.com slash tour for tickets. If you would like for me to make you or a friend of yours a little video greeting via Cameo, I'm at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. If you'd like to meet with me for a half hour or an hour to go over a story or to just brainstorm on stories or learn some storytelling techniques, maybe go over a presentation or talk about a memoir you have in mind or a solo show or any other sort of you know, a podcast you might like to create. You can find me at kevinallison.com. I also sometimes mentor people around issues of kink and BDSM and you know personal stuff like that. And if you would like full-on storytelling training from the very people who coach the Storytellers for Risk shows, you can find all of us at thestorystudio.org. We have online classes where you can train in storytelling with other students and see them telling their stories, give them feedback, get feedback from them and your teacher. You can also go to thestorystudio.org if you're interested in a storytelling workshop for your business. You know, we've done workshops for 
big clients like Google and Pfizer, American Express, Citibank, and now is the perfect time for the sort of team building and morale boosting that come from those sort of corporate workshops that you can find at thestorystudio.org. Don't forget to look up Risk at all of our socials. We're at Risk Show. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And make sure to check out our website at risk-show.com because there's so much to find there. There's the table of contents of every episode. There's merch like the Risk book, tips on how to pitch us your stories. It's all at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It was tasty, but chewy. Tasty and chewy. Fucking chewy. <laughs>